Thank you. All right, children, if you would like to go downstairs to go to Sunday school or nursery, now's the time. Uh, Roberta and Tori are back there and Hannah are back there to receive you. I don't know why you don't want to stay up here and listen to me. Yeah. Now's your chance. Anybody else wants to go? No, just kidding. All right. <laughs> Amen. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes this morning. We're, uh, last week we had a topical sermon on baptism and why uh, we feel that it's important and why we're called Baptists and all that last week. And we dedicated our baptistry for the Lord's use. It was a, then we had a, a potluck like Baptists do, right? It's what, we, it's what we do as Baptists. And we had a great uh, weekend. So just want to thank everybody for their hard work and the food that they brought and and all, it doesn't all just appear magically, and so I just want you guys to know how grateful I am for all of you that are willing to serve the Lord in that regard. But we're going to be back in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, we're in a series of Ecclesiastes. I just found it, it was, uh, as I was contemplating before we started this series, the, the next book I was going to preach out of, I just found it was just so interesting that even though this was written in 10th century B.C., it still applies so much for us today about... Um, Solomon, who the, was the king, a king of Israel, who built the first temple in Jerusalem, uh, son of King David, um, was given wisdom by God, and he used his wisdom and surveyed and used his perception and, and looked around and everything under the sun, and, and he concluded, and he's, uh, this is a book of wisdom for us, and he concluded that, that life is vain. Life is vanity under the sun. The labor that we do, all is vanity, he says. And as we're discovering, as we dig into what he's writing for us, he's employing use of uh, arguing from the negative. He's employing the use of irony to demonstrate to us that truly if we have our meaning and purpose, that we try to find meaning and purpose in this world, life under the sun without God, we are truly hopeless. And life truly is meaningless. And we now live in 2021 in a culture that increasingly denies the existence of God, inclusive, uh, uh, c- continues to, to teach and to, to declare that there is no such thing as an almighty being who has re- re- uh, revealed himself as an absolute standard bearer of truth and what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. They reject those things and say we are all just a cosmic accident. And ultimately, we find ourselves in a society that has no meaning or purpose. And we see the fruit of that being played out in our society today. And so what a great book for us to, to, to come back to and to examine what and see through the eyes of Solomon how important it is to have God at the center of our lives and our families and our society. And he goes from arguing and, and perceiving the injustices that we talked about a couple weeks ago to actually giving us some really good, and his conclusion of the matter, ultimately, in this passage of Scripture today, about fearing God and the importance of having God at the center. So let's go ahead and read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak, and do not be impulsive to make speech before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. 
So let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it, because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Therefore, fear God. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just come before your throne of grace and mercy, Lord. So thankful that we have the opportunity, the ability to come to your throne and we find grace and mercy that you've extended to us in the sacrifice given to us on the cross, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so many years ago on the hill of Golgotha, Lord, that he stood in our place. He took the punishment of our sin on our behalf so that we might be able to hear the message of the good news of your saving uh, saving work in Jesus Christ. And as we believe and receive Jesus as our Savior, the promise that your Spirit would regenerate us, make us born from above, born again, giving us new life, uh, pulled out of the, the first Adam who uh, has uh, been separated. We've been separated from you because of, uh, of sin and, and now adopted into your family through the last Adam, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are so grateful that we can come as your children this morning and ask of you this morning, God, that you would meet with us. Father, that your spirit would do a work within us. Each and every one of us, Lord, have different um, struggles that we're going through, different things that we're, we're challenged with. Our faith, maybe in crisis, Lord, you know, you, you know all those things, God, and I just pray that your spirit would work in the hearts of your people. I pray that if there's anyone within the sound of my voice this morning that has not encountered Jesus in a saving way, that your spirit would um, quicken them, Father, that your spirit would convict them of their need to turn from all else and abandon hope in all else and trust in Christ's accomplished work, atoning work on the cross, that they too may be added into your family. Father, we can't do that for them, but we know that your spirit can, and so we just ask that you would work in our midst as we proclaim your word, Father. May all of us who know Jesus draw closer to him. May we be reminded of your love yet again, Maybe we, may we be through the power of your spirit transformed into the image of Jesus a little more this morning. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. All right, so we have this passage of scripture where Solomon gives us some, some pretty straightforward wisdom. And he's talking about worshiping God. And so in the, his context, right, he's, the, he's the, the man that God chose to build the, the actual temple. The, God's dwelling place was the tabernacle in the wilderness and then and then David desires to build uh, God a temple in Jerusalem. And God says, it's not going to be you, but it's going to be your son. So Solomon comes, he builds the temple, and he gives us this practical wisdom, verses 1 through 7, about worshiping God. Worshiping God. And he's given us these warnings of how to do it. Worshiping the Lord in humility is so important. Right? He concludes at the end of... Verse 7, he says, ultimately, therefore, the conclusion is fear God. 
And what does it mean to fear God? Fear God means to, to understand the awe and the holiness of who our creator God is and to walk with the cognizance of knowing that we in our natural state are sinful. And he's warning the people that are reading his, this book that when they approach God to worship him in the temple, they need to do it with humility. His ultimate conclusion is fear God. He, Solomon also wrote Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs 1.7, he begins his book of Proverbs by saying, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So he's warning them to worship God. When you go to the temple, don't do it in a prideful way. Worship him in humility. He Solomon write in Proverbs 16.18, Pride, the opposite of humility, comes before the fall or destruction. And an arrogant spirit before a fall. These are words of wisdom for us, even today in the New Testament context. Better to be lowly of spirit with the humble than to divide the plunder with, your, with the proud. So again and again, God's divine inspired words tell us to, to walk and worship our God in a means of humility. Humility. And it comes down to worshiping God in humility, right? Ultimately. Worshiping God in humility. What does it mean to worship? In the West, we have this idea that worship is just the time when we have the music hour or the music time. It's like this is the worship portion of the service where we sing. And that is a form of worship indeed. This New Testament declares we should go and we should seek songs and hymns and spiritual songs together with one another. It's a form of worship. But ultimately, worship, the Hebrew word for worship means to bow down. To bow down. To worship means to set yourself underneath. And Solomon is writing to, to demonstrate the, the need and warning the people to, when you go to the house of God, you are to, to worship him with your heart and not just with the outward manifestations of worship. He says, going back to Ecclesiastes 5, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. We know as we went through our temple series just a, a month or so ago, we understand that there was many sacrifices on a daily basis that would happen at the temple grounds. And it got to the point where uh, God's people would just do the sacrifice as the means. It was an outward manifestation, but their heart was far from God. They would just do, do diligently, and they thought they would come into the house of God, and as long as they offered the sacrifice, they were good with God. So they were outwardly doing what was called to them, but their heart was far from God. Again and again, we see that time and time again in the Old Testament. It's God sending in his prophets to warn the people that they're, although they proclaim God with their lips, their hearts are far from him. In Ezekiel, so many people come to you, the prophet says, talking to the Lord, in crowds. And they sit in front of you and hear your words, but they don't obey them. Solomon says, it's better to approach in obedience than to offer a bunch of sacrifices. Because being obedient is a manifestation of your heart in the eyes of a holy God. You're actually bowing down and worship your, your God through your heart actions of obedience and not offering the outs outward manifestations of the sacrifices. 
He says they, they, don't, they hear the words, but they don't obey them. Their mouths go on passionately, but their hearts pursue dishonest profit. Their hearts are far from him. And so we have this idea, this warning of worshiping God and humility that um, Solomon is giving to us in the Old Testament context. And so my style of preaching is expository. And so my main goal this morning is to, to give you what I believe um, Solomon was trying to convey. I'm not trying to interject my own meanings into the scripture. But at the same time, it's also important for me to be able to apply it to us today in the New Testament context. So that's difficult because God deals with his people very differently in the Old Testament as opposed to what we find how God is dealing with us today in the New Testament context. And so I want to try to, to bridge the two together, both convey the meaning that Solomon is trying to, to get across to us, that we can take the heart, but then to apply it in the New Testament context this morning. And so as we see that Solomon is warning his people as they go to the temple to worship God, that they need to do it with a heart of humility and to bow before him. It's about the heart, not about the external actions that they're going to be doing in the sacrifices. So too must we worship God with our heart, in spirit and in truth, and not just the external things that we do. We tend to do, it can creep into our worship as well. We can become prideful or arrogant, or we can worship God just doing the externals, come to church, check the box, but our heart remains far from God. And so from the New Testament context, again, um, if you want a better understanding, I think there's a couple books uh, in the back in the foyer there called the Holy of Holies on one of the tables that talks about the temple, the tabernacle, the temple, and now ultimately God, uh, all that pointing to Jesus as the temple who rose three days later, um, uh, the, the representation of God on earth, he tabernacled among us. And ultimately, as he ascended to the Father, his promise was to give us the Spirit of God. And now the Spirit of God, whoever receives and believes Jesus in a saving way, the Spirit of God comes and indwells them, regenerates them, makes them born again. And we now are the temple of God because God dwells within us. That's a, that's a very short um, summary of what salvation and the good news is all about. I remember growing up making fun, I call them the born-agains. Oh, the born-agains. Yeah, they just say they, they believe on Jesus and accept him as their Savior, and then they can just go on sinning. But what I failed to realize was that when you encounter Jesus in a saving way, right, the Spirit of God transforms you. He makes you into a new creation. He regenerates you. He, you're born from above. You're now a new creature in Christ. I, I didn't understand that. That's so important for us to understand. And that's in John chapter 4. We, we, I have messages online if you want to go and listen to the, t- the t- temple series about um, how we are now God's temple in the New Testament context. And we see that very succinctly when Jesus encounters uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. The woman at the well is a Samaritan. She's an outcast of the outcast. She's... Um, the Samaritans had, had split off of the, of the Jewish group and they had their own temple in Samaria and the Jews uh, worshipped God in the temple in Jerusalem and they worshipped God in their temple up in the Samaria, Samaritan region. Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman and she asks this question. She says um, to Jesus, so when the Messiah comes, where are we going to worship him? 
right? Because up until this point, they've always worshipped him at a specific location, at the temple. Whether they were Samaritan, they built their own temple, or Jews in, the, in Jerusalem. Where are we going to worship him? Is it going to be this temple of Samaritan or the one in Jerusalem? And, and this is his response. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. He's saying, look, there's coming a time when God's people won't have to go to a specific location, a geographical location. They will be able to worship God in spirit and truth because God will dwell within them. We can worship our God in spirit, capital S, because the spirit of God dwells within us. And in truth, we are now the temple. Jesus going on in John 14 after he washes the disciples' feet, after he gives them the, the new command, love one another as I have loved you, demonstrating that to ultimately worship God is to bow down your own life to God, to Jesus, and, and live your life for God by loving others as Christ has loved us. And he says to his disciples, and he says to us in his inspired word, if you love me, if you love Jesus for what he's done for you, if you want to reciprocate the love, this is what you will do. You will love one another as I have loved you. And you will keep my commands. You will keep my commands. And so we begin to see the wed wedding of the obedience that Solomon's warning the children of Israel to do when they, God says, I'd rather have you have a heart of obedience than to offer a bunch of sacrifices. And it is the same for us, that God would rather have us walk in obedience than to fill our life with a bunch of frivolous meritorious works that we think might outweigh the bad that we've done. God desires for us to walk in obedience. And if we are the temple, then we are to bow down before God and worship him by giving our lives to him. And the good news is, is we don't have to do it in our own strength and power. If you're a God, child of God, you have the spirit of God within you. He didn't do that on accident. He gave you the Spirit of God so that he would empower us to live this life that he's calling us to. The, the problem is, is we're, we're still saved with the, the old nature, and we have the new nature, and, and they're out of fight, and the promise is one day we will be glorified, and that old nature will be dead. Can't wait for that day. But until then, we have a fight going on. We have a fight going on, but God has given us the Spirit to, to empower us for this life he's called us to. He tells us, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, the great comfort of the paracletus, to, to be with you forever. And who is he, this third person of our triune God? Personal pronoun here. He's not just a force. He's the third person of our triune one, eternal God. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. I stumble because that makes me sad. <laughs> but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you the promise of the indwelling that was to come that we see fulfilled in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So we're now the temple of God and the call for the Christian is to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Those sacrifices in the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah that would come has been fulfilled. We are now the temple of God, and now we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to our God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Paul writes in Romans 12, in view of the mercies of God, in view of what God has done for us, 
I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true what? Worship. Worship God in humility, as Solomon writes, as a life in the New Testament context that walks in humility before God, the ultimate manifestation of fearing God, walking in humility to present our bodies a living sacrifice to worship. This is our reasonable worship. This is your true worship. So we have the opportunity to worship God, not just the hour that we show up to church on Sunday. We have the ability to worship God every living moment we're out in this world as we bow our hearts and our minds and try to live for God. It is a form of worship. He says, go out, be my light, be my salt. Worship me in that way. Bow the knee to me. Allow the spirit, yield to the spirit. Yielding to the spirit is walking and worshiping God in humility, saying, I can't do it on my own. To say that I can be better and work better and show God's love better in my own strength is an attitude of pride. That's what Solomon's warning against. We need to come to God in humility, realizing that we can't do it. We can't do what he's called us to do. We can't be living sacrifices. We can't offer true worship most of our lives without the Spirit of God doing it within us and keeping our focus on him in that. And it's interesting, as I was struggling with this passage of Scripture, I began to see the similarities that uh, Solomon writes in verses 1 through 7 through what many of, of the passages of what James wrote in his book in the New Testament context. And so, again, this is me attempting to try to, to make it applicable to, to the New Testament context that as Solomon is warning what we are to do, how are we to work or worship God in humility, he gives us four points of how in the Old Testament context we are to do that. James also gives us these same points in the New Testament context of us as the um, temple of God. And the call remains the same, that we are to worship God in humility. And so as we saw, his first point was to walk in obedience, right? It's better to be obedient than to offer a bunch of sacrifices in hopes that the sacrifices cover up your disobedience. James calls us in the New Testament context as the temple of God on earth. He says this, walk in obedience. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word. Humbly receive what God has given us as the means in which we can be transformed, which is able to save your souls. Receive it. And he goes on to say, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Again, obedience. God has given us commands. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. We have this ability to, to reflect God's glory and his holiness to the world that desperately needs him. Uh, so desperately. But we are to be a people that don't just hear the word, but attempt to do it, to walk in obedience. If we don't, we're deceiving ourselves. 
James's book is a book that talks about this saving faith that we are granted in Christ Jesus. And he's, he's trying to demonstrate to his readers that a saving faith is an act of faith. That to hear the gospel message and receive Jesus as your Savior and be truly regenerated and born from above should produce action. That faith should produce fruit in your life. To not have works that follow this faith in receiving this gift that we cannot earn a merit and above ourselves to be given this grace of God, this unmerited favor and love extended to us in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and then to go on living with no fruit as a dead faith is what James is trying to get across. A saving faith is an act of faith. Faith follows works. All the verses that we proclaim to those that try to justify themselves in the eyes of God by, by doing good works, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you continue to read, and we are therefore called unto good works after God has saved us. A saving faith is an act of faith. And James is trying to demonstrate to his readers, like, look, if this, is a tr- this truly has happened, then, then this should be a, something that should be present, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And he's calling us to, to walk in obedience because God has given us the Spirit of God and the Word of God to, to empower us to do so. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like someone looking on, at his own face in a mirror. And all of us, at least I can det- contest that every year that gets scarier and scarier when I wake up in the morning and see myself in the mirror, Right? It's like looking at the mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. He has a realization of his true reflection. And as we open up God's word, we have a realization of our true reflection of who we are spiritually in the eyes of a holy God. In and of ourselves, we are separate. We are sinners. We are deserving of his judgment and condemnation, but yet he's extended grace. And we encounter him. But a person who looks at the word and hears the word but doesn't do anything with it, it's like someone who sees that and just walks away and forgets about it. It's that same idea of the guy going into the temple and doing the external sacrifices when his heart is far from him. We can come to church and worship God in the external things that we do, but our hearts still can be far from him. He goes on in verse 25, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom. I love that phrase. The law of God which demonstrates condemnation and sin to those who are uh, humanity because we all fall short of the glory of God. Paul, uh, the scriptures explicitly state we're all separated from God. But through what Christ has done, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and now we have the law that represents the God and who we serve. And this law no longer stands over us and condemning us, but now we have the ability through the power of the Spirit to walk in newness of life and this per- look into the perfect law of liberty and reflect the glory of God to the world around us. Those who look into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the works, or a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. We often think of following God and walking in obedience to God as a task that we have to do, and it's so terrible and it's so hard. But as the Christian walks obediently, 
the promise of Scripture is you will be blessed. The fruit of the Spirit will be manifested. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all these things. It's a, it's, we're doing what God's originally intended us to be, worshiping God in spirit and in truth, bowing the knee, humbly worshiping Him in our actions, in our heart, and not just the external, externalities. I don't think that's a word, but you understand, right? The second point, Solomon calls to us is be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. He's talking about a guy going into the temple and he's kind of covering himself by eloquent speech and saying all these words, exhibiting a prideful heart, thinking of himself too high of a position of what he truly is in the eyes of a holy God. Do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Again, an attitude of humility. The God of very gods, the God who spoke this universe into existence is revealed to have been in heaven, or in heaven as we speak, with heavenly beings surrounding him day and night, declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. He is the God that we worship. And to try to worship him in a, with a prideful, arrogant heart is, leads to destruction. It's, it's, it's not good. We must understand who we're worshiping. He's saying, don't be hasty to speak. Bow your heart to God. Worship him in humility. He goes on in verse 3, just as dreams accompany much labor, so also fool's voice comes with ma- a fool's voice comes with many words. And so in the New Testament context, how can we bring this into context for us? If we're the temple of God, the first one is obedience, walk in obedience to God, right? Jesus was asked why he was in his earthly ministry. What is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. The first one is this. The second one is love your neighbor as yourself. The first one takes care of worshiping God, right? If you're walking in obedience to God, you're demonstrating your love towards God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The second, the next two reflect to love your neighbor as yourself, the second greatest commandment. So for the temple of God, we're to be used of God, we're to worship God, offer ourselves as living sacrifices. How do we interact with one another? How do we worship God by treating one another? And those outside, those that we encounter. James speaks to this as well. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. Just as the person in the Old Testament context was to walk into the temple and understand he's worshiping God. He should keep his words few. As we encounter each other in the church context or out and about, we are not to, to try to overspeak and to be the, the, the person that knows everything and has lots to say because that exhibits a prideful heart. Uh, humility, a part of humility says we are quick to listen and slow to speak. So if we're to worship God, in humility in the New Testament context. We're preferring others. We're quick to listen, slow to speak, and we're also to be slow to anger, right? We're just to extend the grace that's been given to us. Quick to listen, slow to speak, 
slow to anger. He goes on, James goes on to elaborate on the, the tongue and speaking in James chapter 3. And he compares the tongue like a rudder on a ship. We know that a ship, a very large ship, is controlled by just a very small implement, right? The rudder. And that little rudder can change the direction of that ship um, very powerfully. And James says, your tongue is just like a rudder. It has so much power in it. So much power. And he warns us, if we're going to worship God in spirit and truth, if we're going to fear God and walk in humility, we need to watch our tongue with each other. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless and evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. That same tongue that blesses God and Father, the Father, and we come and worship and sing to him. That same tongue is the same tongue that we use to turn around and slay people and tear them down with our words. How important it is to understand the power of the tongue. James goes on, blessing and cursing can come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way shouldn't be this way if we're, we're serving God if we're worshiping God in our actions of providing ourselves as living sacrifices we need to walk with the understanding of the what we can do with the words that we speak do not spring does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening how can this be can a fig tree produce olives my brothers and sisters or a grapevine produce figs neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. I think we get the point. Paul writes in Ephesians, you can tear people down, but your tongue can also build people up. We can use it for good. Right? That's what Paul calls, that's what the scriptures call us to. Use your words to, as he says, let no corruption, talk, no, no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. See, it's not just about watching what we don't do. It's about what we do with it. Build people up with your words. Extend grace to them. That is what God has called us to do. That is what, we, what it looks like to provide or give ourselves as living sacrifices to our God, to walk humbly with him. When you, uh, the next point, walk in integrity. Solomon says in verses 4 through 6, when you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. It's like, man, when you, when you make a vow to God, it, don't delay. That is a serious thing. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. He says what's worse than that is when you make a vow and you don't fulfill it. And then you make the excuse, don't let your mouth bring guilt upon you and do not say to the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Oh, I didn't really mean that. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the works of your hands? God is alive. To, to take the Lord's name in vain is to, to, to just cheaply use God's word in a vow or as a cuss word. This is our creator God who is holy. And to use his name so cheaply is not what God's people should be doing. In fact, the New Testament context, and James talks about it, 
that we're not to make vows at all. Vows to God, vows to the heavens, vows to the earth. James says, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear or make a vow, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you will not fall under judgment. He says this, don't, you, don't, don't swear to God or to... Just let your yes be yes. Walk in integrity. When you say yes, mean yes. And do it. When you say no, it means no. There's no need to invoke a higher power in that. And James gets that from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus himself said this on his, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Verses 33 through 37. Jesus himself says, Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, You must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool. No matter what you swear by, if you think you're not invoking God by swearing to something lesser than God, you're, it's still all of God's. It's his domain. Or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. And he says, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. So if we're going to worship our God in humility, if we're going to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, God has called us to do so as a means of walking in integrity, to walking in obedience and walking in integrity and using the giftedness in our tongue to, to build people up. We see, see all this being played out for us. And then the last point that Solomon gives us is the conclusion of the matter. Just a, um, what is it? Um, the ultimate conclusion that Solomon's going to come to at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes is found here in this verse. Solomon ultimately says in, in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I've come to this conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments. And he gives us the conclusion again here, first here in, in, uh, in 5.7. Therefore, for many dreams bring futility, and so do many words. Therefore, fear God. Again, fearing God, understanding who he is. There's a great uh, um, uh, example of this found in the Old Testament. When King Saul, he's, he's the first king of, of the children of Israel. He gets prideful in heart. And in 1 Samuel 15, you'll find this story. He gets prideful in heart, and he... He, uh, God tells him to go take out the enemies of God, the, the Amalekites. And he says, don't, don't, just annihilate them and don't bring any of the plunder back. Just let it, let it sit and rot. Don't take anything back. He God specifically commands him to do that. He goes, he, he does, he takes care of the Amalekites, but he brings the plunder back. Him and his generals bring the plunder of wars back. And Samuel ultimately comes and confronts him and says, because you've disobeyed God, um, you're going to lose the kingdom. He says, well, I brought, I brought those, those gifts back, the punters back, so I could sacrifice to God. And Solomon, Solomon, or Samuel, thank you, specifically states, what is better, to offer sacrifices or to obey God? Look, to obey God is better. Because you didn't obey, you're going to lose the kingdom. And one of Samuel's 
last night I took us through it, but it was, it's a very long passage of scripture. So I was trying to shorten it up, but I kind of regret it now. But one of Samuel's excuses was, but Lord, um, uh, I did it for you. I did it to offer sacrifices to you. And I think it just speaks to us today that we, can, we often, right, um, justify our actions as a means to, to please God and appease God when ultimately he desires us to walk in obedience and to fear God. And one of his excuses for, for taking the plunder back is he says, the generals, my people below me, I feared them because they wanted to take the plunder and I feared them and I didn't want to I didn't want the consequences of m- rejecting what they they wanted to take the plunder and I feared them and so ultimately um, Saul feared men over God he feared the power of men and the influence of men over him fearing God and all of us can fall prey to that the fear of men rather than walking in obedience and fearing God and who he is and understanding truly who he is all of us, and even in the New Testament context, can, look, I'm a pastor. I, I want our church to grow, and I want everybody to be happy here and enjoy it. And so the temptation is to, to you know, please all of you, please men. But ultimately, what God calls me to is to fear him. And all of us need to be reminded of that. We're to fear God and walk in humility and worship of him. And not be in fear of men. Fear God. And James talks about this as well. He uses some pretty strong languages as far as serving and living for God rather than living for the world. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. You cannot serve both man and God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? The spirit of God who dwells within the heart of the believer is a jealous God. And when we go out finding satisfaction and pleasure of the world and, and walking in our own pride, lifting ourselves up and, and not walking in humility, it grieves the spirit of God. Ephesians 4.29 that I just gave you, verse 30 says, and do not grieve the Spirit of God. Because when we do those things, when we live for the world, when we walk on our own for our own reasons, we grieve the Spirit of God, the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely. And he goes on, but He gives grace, or gives greater grace. Again, reminding us that this, this walk that God has called us to, this walk of a being a living sacrifice, walking in humility, is not derived in our own strength, but it is through God's unmerited grace and favor extended to us he gives greater to grace how do we get this grace of god therefore he says god resists the proud those who walk in proud and proudful lift themselves up i don't need god i got this this grace that comes of god that enables us to live this life he's calling us to is given to the humble to walk in humility before god is to walk in the fear of god God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So how do we, what does it look like to walk in humility? James goes on. 
Therefore, submit to God. You want to walk in humility? You want to receive God's grace? Submit to him in your life. Resist the devil. Yes, we have an enemy who wants us to, to destroy our testimony, wants us to live in a life of misery and dejection. And God, through the inspired words of James, says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we resist him? We draw near to God. He's given us his word. He's given us the body of believers to draw close to one another and to sing songs to him and to worship him in that and to give us the word that we can open up anytime. All of us have the word of God at our disposal and flick of a button on our phone. We can draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he, I think it's important that he takes some time to, to address sin, the sin in our lives. We, right? First John says if, if we say we have no sin, then, we do, then we're liars. Right? That battle that's going on in us. And, and still in the New Testament context, even though Christ has paid the, the consequence for it, the, the power of sin has been destroyed over us, the sin that still in, in, uh, indwells us prohibits us from truly worshiping God as he desires. And he addresses this. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. God has a means in which we can go to God and dwell with him and, and come to him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We understand we're cleansed in the blood of Jesus, but, but we are to go to God and say, Lord, I know I'm, I continue to sin and I confess it to you and I know it grieves you and I'm so sorry, but we need to take time to do that. That's a life of humility. Not just say, ah, oh, I did it again and go on. We need to take time and go to God with those things. He says, concerning sin, be miserable and mourn and weep. In the Old Testament context, you see people who were confronted for their sin. They take days to mourn over what they've done against holy God. How about us? Do we take time, if we have a heart of humility, to, to mourn over the things that are in our hearts and our lives that grieve God? Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And if we do so, the promise is he will raise us up. He will bring us out of the miry clay. But our call is to walk and worship our God in humility. And in the fear of the Lord, the same conclusion remains for us. We are to fear God and walk in humility and to present ourselves as living sacrifices, to bow down our hearts before our God, not just on Sunday morning in every waking moment that we have on this earth. We have the opportunity to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, God, to be reminded today of what you've saved us from and um, not only that, but the, the, the gift of the spirit you've given us and as you desire your people, as you've done all through time to walk in obedience, God. We're so grateful that you've empowered us to do so through the power of the spirit and um, the promise to preserve your word that reflects who you are and your holiness and how we are to walk. And we're thankful for the book of James that makes our faith active and gives us the guidelines on what it should look like. And I'm the first to admit that often my life does not reflect what you've called us to, God. And I'm sorry.